The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. To learn more about the work of IJM, listen to the Esther series on this podcast. It's just a few shows back. Start with episode one and get a really good sense of what IJM is doing and how you can help. Then go to IJM.org forward slash rescue dash children. Thank you. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we have an enlightening conversation with the Reverend Michael Mather. The Reverend Mather is a pastor of Broadway United Methodist Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. He has been a pastor for over 33 years and is the author of a book that really makes up the bulk of our conversation today. His book, available everywhere, is called Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, Finding Abundant Communities in Unexpected Places. I was sent this book last summer by one of my very best friends who is also my pastor. His name is Teddy. And when he sends me a book, I read it. And I was just sitting by the pool reading this book and was deeply moved and convicted because Reverend Mather has tapped into a way of viewing community that, frankly, I've, I've never seen and I've never been a part of in a church. That's all I'm gonna say about it now, because really in this interview, I get to walk with Reverend Mather through the very same paradigm shift that rattled my cage and made me rethink what we can be really as neighbors. I think this conversation will also reframe how you view the word activist. It certainly did for me, I hope you enjoy. Here is the very kind and lovely Reverend Michael Mather. So I was sent a book uh, right before I went on vacation this summer, and it was your book. I'm going to tell folks the title, even though I know you know the title of it. But uh, your book is called Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, Finding Abundant Communities in Unexpected Places. In it, you share about a transformation that happened in you and in a church that you began to pastor at, Broadway United Methodist. But I'm curious, right before Broadway, you were a pastor at a church. So I'm curious, like right before this transformation, um, what was your role as a pastor? How did you see it? And what what was the kind of the, re- the pastoral reality you were you were living in? So I served a church for one year before I came to to Broadway in Indianapolis the first time. There I, you know, we had Sunday morning worship followed by Sunday school. And in the evening, we had Sunday evening worship. And I had my first funeral. And, uh, you know, I'd, um, I'd only ever been to one funeral in my life before I presided at one. Wow. And um, I, you know, visited people in the hospital and, you know, went over to the local school and talked with people. We had senior citizens public housing right across the street from the parsonage and the church. And I would go over there and talk with people first, the people who were members of the church, and then they introduced me to other people around there. Um, So it was, uh, yeah, there in the city of Evansville, Indiana. But yeah. I was just there for a year, and I actually got kicked out. Why? Is that okay to ask? Is that too personal? I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 No. I mean, I was I was young and flip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I I you know the, uh, the short version of the story is I did a, a funeral for a woman in the congregation whose daughter was getting married and. The woman and her daughter were white, and the guy her daughter was marrying was black. And 
she had, the mother had been upset by this and had talked to me about it. And I had thought, oh, this is the end of my ministry because I'm not handling this well. And I don't, I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't helpful to her. And then a, f- a, a few days later, she called me and asked me to meet me in the church office. And she brought in her daughter and her to be son in law and said, I want them to be married in the church. And, um, the uh, Sonny, the man, says she asked me to call her mom, and I just thought this was amazing. And, and I know it doesn't sound like a story about how I get kicked out, but it was because yeah. because um, a few weeks later, about a month before the wedding, um, the woman in our congregation um, actually one Sunday she called me over to her pew and she showed me this beautiful engagement photo. And she said, Mike, I took this color photograph of Sonny and Beverly. And she said, Mike, I took this down to the newspaper because they wouldn't, but they wouldn't print it because they said we only print um, black and white photos. And she said, I told them, honey, this is black and white as it gets. <laughs> oh my um, gosh. But on, on, um, on Monday, she that after that Sunday, she went to the hospital, and early on Tuesday morning, she died. And my first wow. parishioner who'd ever died, and she had asked me to have the funeral in the church, so we did. And the funeral was, of course, integrated. Yeah. And on Sunday, after the Sunday morning worship service, I walked into her Sunday school class to hear the teacher say, "Did you see those?" And she used an expletive in church. Lillian is rolling over in her grave. Wow! And I knew that Lillian's heart had changed about this. I didn't know why. I mean, what, how God had done this with her. But so I went and rewrote the Sunday evening sermon, and I told them the story about what had happened. And um, they called the pastor parish committee meeting. <laughs> So this is over 30 years ago. I can remember it like it was yesterday. They said, um, you're destroying everything we're trying to teach our children. What are they trying to teach their children? (laughs) Well, again, you know, I'd been to seminary. I should have said something wise and pastoral, but what I said was, I think I know what you mean, and maybe that's not so bad. Oh, no, that's a great answer. (laughs) Then they said, um, well, God didn't mean dogs and cats to marry. Oh, my. And I said, look, we're not talking about different species, dachshunds and Dalmatians maybe, but not dogs and cats. Anyway, you can see that this was not going well. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was spiraling. And so a few, uh, about a month after that, a guy had been appointed to be the senior pastor up here at Broadway in Indianapolis. And he asked me to come over to his house and he said, you know, I'd like you to join me in, in Indianapolis working at Broadway. And I said, you know, I'm going through such a hard time. I'd really rather stay here and get to the other side of this, you know. And he said, oh, honey, <laughs> yeah, no. they're not going to let you stay. <laughs> oh, no. And, and I said, well, I want to. And he said, well, if they don't let you stay, would you want to come up here and work? And I said, well, if they don't let me stay, sure. Well, here I am. Wow. So you got let go of the first church. I mean, you said because you were being flipped, but really you were pushing back against racism in that church. And so you got, I mean, is that fair to, I mean, that's fair to say, right? Like, well, that's... but I mean, it's just, you know, there was, um, I, yes, certainly, but th- there were things I could have figured out how to handle them more graciously. <laughs> right, right. I, you didn't have the diplomacy of a seasoned pastor. I understand right. what you're saying. Right, 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 right. right. So. But still that was the, that was the presenting cause. So you moved to Broadway and what's, and you're invited to Broadway. Like yeah. what is, 
Broadway like? Where is it situated? Just kind of paint yeah. the picture of that church. Yeah. Sure, we're 30 blocks north of downtown Indianapolis, low-income community that had been during the 30s and 40s and 50s the the place for young professionals in Indianapolis. And um, in fact, in the 30s and 40s, Broadway was the largest church in Indiana, not only um, the largest uh, Methodist church, but the largest church in Indiana in the 30s and 40s. And then in the yeah. 50s, white flight had started to happen. And um, as people fled to the suburbs, a remnant of people had chosen to stay, right? And they had been figuring out, well, we want to be in relationship to with our neighbors. And so they thought, um, you know, as many people did in those years, this is the way to do it. Let's let's do programming for our neighbors. So they would, they had, uh, when I got here in 1986, there was a summer program, there was um, an after school program, there was a food pantry, there was this after school program had a meal associated with it, there was a Christmas giveaway, a Thanksgiving giveaway, um, just a lot of those things. I mean, that all s sounds good, like good stuff, right? Like, yeah. I mean, that seems like yes. what, what a lot of church churches do, right? That's good. Yes. I, and I felt good about it. This is what I wanted to do. This is, I wanted to be helpful. I figured I was going to be helpful. I was, you know, I imagined myself as I had been born and raised to think of myself in the church in a little ways, in ways as um, the savior, <laughs> you know, trying to right. walk in the feet of Jesus. And, you know, I thought it was great that I was going to run these programs. But when I came, the summer program was basketball for the boys and cheerleading for the girls. Oh, and very painful. <laughs> I, I dislike that just because I, I, just, yeah. I mean, maybe they want to cheerlead. Maybe the girls want to play basketball. That's it's not right. Fair. Let's just have sports. Yeah. Anyhow. So we, we changed that. It was very difficult, very painful, but it took a couple mm -hmm. of years. But we built each week around a spiritual principle. We started every day with devotions. We ended every day with devotions. We had um, what we called education for the human spirit and recreation for a healthy body. We had all the sports you might imagine, but we also had Bible study, history, math, um, uh, poetry, um, music, art, violin lessons. I mean, just everything you could imagine. And I broke my arm, patting myself on the back, felt so good about it. 250 young people every day, nine to five. Yeah. I mean, that's the metric of success, right? When other pastors get around each other, that's, that's chit chatting right. about how many people and what the programs are. N not only other pastors, but that's what the funders wanted to know. You know, we got right. grant support and all they ever asked was how many people showed up, how many volunteer hours. And so by all those measures, I was doing great. Right. Did, and you felt like you were doing great. Like yes. this was, yes. and this isn't even like some antiquated standard. This is like still, this is how a lot of churches, fine churches with fine pastors and great people in it would view success. There are people, there are programs, there's a fine Sunday worship. We're doing our job as a church. Yep. So I know the punchline of this because I've had the privilege to read the book, but can you walk us a bit through the events that unfolded that began to shift your perception of what success looked like? So in, in 1991, I, I left at December 31st, 91, and was sent by the bishop to another church. But um, in 1991, the last nine months I was here, 
I did nine funerals for young men in, under 25 years old in the four-block radius around our church building, yeah. and um, it kicked the heck out of me. Many of these young people had grown up in the programming of the church, the programming before me and the programming that we had been running. When I was there, they'd all died by violence, um, yeah. and you know, people... Um, and and I could have just kept doing funerals, right? <laughs> and yeah. and it could have made no connection between that and the reports I was filling out that said how many contact hours and how many volunteers and how many young people there were. But I I was thinking, man, I am not doing. We are not doing nearly as well as we'd hoped, as I'd mm. hoped. And yeah. um, people would say to me, oh, but if you hadn't been doing this, it would have been even worse. And I, there were two things I said to that. One is, no, <laughs> that isn't yeah. what's going on here. And the second is, even if you're right, this isn't good enough. We should be talking about this. We, you know, these are people who we know, people's lives, you know, Marvin and Andre and Jaguar and these, you know, and it just, it, it beat yeah. me up. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. So how, how do you begin to answer the very practical question of like, you know, it, it's this isn't the thing that's helping. So then what is the thing? Right. So I I didn't know. So I, the bishop yeah. had called me and, and wanted to send me to another church and um, up in South Bend, Indiana. In, in a low-income, low-wealth community up there, and, and I was happy to go. But I thought, okay, this is going to give me another chance. I can try and do this better. I can try and figure this out, right? Mm -hmm. So I go, it's to this little church that has 40 members. And, and we also had lunch every Sunday after worship. We had a food pantry there. When people came to the food pantry, we got government surplus food. So we had a government form for people to fill out. How much is your income? How much are your expenses? You know, And so people say, well, my income is $600 a month and my expenses are $1,200 a month. Well, you know, yeah, 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 uh, we're a little yeah. congregation of 40 people. We can't do anything about that for one person, much less all the people who came to the pantry. So right. we just took that information and put it in a file cabinet. Hmm. So because we couldn't, there was nothing. Because what else can you do? There's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So we come to Pentecost in 1992. And at worship, I, you know, we read the passage from Acts 2 about Pentecost and you know, I preached about it. Then we went to the meal afterwards, this meal that we had every Sunday. And I was sitting around the table and about a half an hour after we had been eating, this woman says, you said that Peter reading from the book of the prophet Joel said that God's spirit flows down on all people, young and old, women and men. And I thought, man, how good am I? I'm, 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 I'm very impressive. I, it's a half right. an hour later and she remembers what I said. I am a great yeah. preacher, right? You're doing great. Yes. And she says, I said, that's right. And she says, so how come you don't treat people like that? Oh. And I was like, that's, what do you- That's a, that's a direct shot. Yes. That's hard to hear. And I said, yeah, well, what do hear. you mean? And she said, yeah. when people come to the food pantry, you ask people how poor they are. If you believe God's spirit flows down on all people, young and old, women and men, how come you aren't asking people about that? Well, that's a very good question. Wow. <laughs> so we changed our questions. <laughs> Instead oh, of uh, asking people how poor they were, we started asking people how rich they were. And we, I had found something from a community organizer from the Lawndale neighborhood in 
in Chicago that had devised um, a survey to be done um, in the length of, in laundromats and the length of time it took for the dryer cycle to go through. Hmm. <laughs> and so it had, it was a list of what skills and talents people had at a very practical level. Have you taken care of older folks? Have you taken care of children? Have you done it because you do it in your own home, because you're taking care of a family or friend, because you have a job somewhere doing this? Um, can you fix a toaster? Can you drive a car? Do you play a musical instrument? Do you sing? If you grow things, do you grow flowers? Do you grow vegetables? Have you cooked for more than 10 people? Have you cleaned up after more than 10 people? It's really practical. I mean, it's just asset mapping people. That's right. So we, wow. you know, it was about 10 pages of those questions. And at the end, we asked three questions. What three things do you do well enough that you can teach somebody else how to do it? Because everybody <laughs> has something they know. The next thing was, what three things would you like to learn that you don't already know? And the third was, who besides God and me is going with you along the way? Because when people huh. came to us at the food pantry, it was clear they felt isolated and alone. Nobody came like hopping and skipping through the doors, right? right. <laughs> to, right. To, to do this. So one of the first people who came to us was a little woman who lived about a block, uh, half a block from the church named Adele Almaguer. And she lived with three generations of her family in this house, and she was having a hard time making ends meet. And so we did this survey with her, and she said she was a good cook. So we said, prove it. And she said, what do you mean? <laughs> we'll cook for the custodian and the secretary and the pastor lunch on Friday. So she cooked for us. We paid her for it. It was great. Yeah. So the leadership of the neighborhood organization was meeting, and we said, don't meet somewhere else. Meet here at the church and let Adele cook for you. So she did. They paid her for it. They loved it. So over the next nine months, there were three things in the neighborhood she cooked for. Studebaker Elementary School had a PTA meeting. She provided the food. Southeast Side Neighborhood Health Center had an open house. They needed food. She provided it. Memorial Hospital in South Bend had a press conference in our neighborhood. Huh. They needed food. She provided it. Well, then the chamber like caterer. <laughs> that's right. So then, the, yeah, yeah, the, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then the Chamber of Commerce calls us and they say, Hey, we want to have a meeting of our leadership program in your church building. And we said, Well, that date works. You can do that. And they said, Since we're going to be there all day and we have 70 people, we need to use your, your kitchen. We said, Well, you can use our kitchen, but we would prefer that you use our caterer. <laughs> And they yeah, said, awesome. okay, of course. yes, right. Adele. <laughs> That's right. And so they said, okay. So we took $20 and bought her a thousand business cards. They said, La Chaparita Catering, Spunky Tex-Mex Food. And she fed <laughs> 70 of the business and civic leaders. They passed out her business card to everybody there. Through that, she got connected to the Michiana Business Women's Association. And a year and a half later, she opened up Adelita's Fajitas at the corner of 8th and Harrison in Elkhart. Now, That's unbelievable. if we had said to her when she showed up, tell us how poor you are, we would have all ended up poor for it, and we would have missed a lot of great food. And yeah, because it wasn't a handout, right? No. You were giving her. Everybody needed to eat. Catering yes. was going to be bought. I mean, this was just a, this was a call and response, and, but you just had to say the right question. That's right. And so that we could see, right? And all of a sudden, right. I realized this is what I believe. This is how I, I didn't have to change my theology. This is how I believe God works. Hmm. But what I, what I realized was, but I don't have any practices for that. 
All my practices are around scarcity. All my practices are around seeing what people don't have. All my practices are around me being the one who's doing something. And maybe what people are doing in their lives is already powerful and true and good. And I need to stop acting like all they are is a sack of needs. And and so I didn't have to, I mean, what, what began to change for me slowly was, you know, I was, I need to find some practices that are built around abundance rather than scarcity Mm. that are built around what people have, not what people are missing. And, you know, we had our youngest son at the time was like three years old. And I remember realizing at one point that I'd been treating people as if you know, when I got him up in the morning, I would start out the day by saying to him, so tell me what's wrong with you today. <laughs> mm. you, yeah. It would be a really right. lousy. And, and I thought, what if people just treated me like the only thing that was true of me was the things that are the worst about me or the most missing? So how does it begin to like your your philosophy and your heart is changing? How does it begin to, uh, how does that begin to change how you pastor? So it's, again, this is incremental and slow, but right, right, um, right. I think right. W- right. I think what began to happen was at at first it was more in these little practices like changing the question, like when people mm-hmm. come to the food pantry, and you know changing the question when I walked you know back to my house from the church, which was about a block and a half away, and I talked to people and I found myself asking people different questions than I'd asked before. And um, I, I found myself also, I mean, people would often want to talk to me and say, you know, th- because I'm the pastor, oh, let me tell you about this problem, right? And then I realized, oh, that's, that's all they think I'm interested in. Mm, yeah. <laughs> what's, yeah. What's wrong in, in this situation? So then I started noticing on Sunday morning that, you know, what am I paying attention to? Here was this church. It was, it had, you know, there were about 40 people there on Sunday morning, and they often kind of beat themselves up over what they weren't anymore. They used to be bigger, you know, they used to have more. But one of the things that started meaning to me there was me trying to find ways to open the space during worship on Sunday morning for people to share not just prayer concerns, but also some gift that they had, some some way in which they were living out a calling in their life in the world, not in and through the agency of the church, but in and through their lives, and finding ways to to make space for that, because that's a good thing, a good and holy thing, actually. I think so. Um, I would say in small ways, I was doing that towards the end of my time there. Um, but I think in our work outside the church, it just began to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And particularly when in 2000, um, I think it went to a new level when uh, I, I got back from being away for a while and um, the people of the church said, hey, there's this artist we um, up at the uh, alcohol and drug addiction rehab place, and um, we think you'd like to meet him. He was, I don't know, 23 years old. His name's Diamon Hargis. And, um, yeah. and somebody had told him, hey, there's a pastor down the street who likes artists. <laughs> so he came down to see me and we began talking and and I loved 
you know, his talking about his joy at his art. He was a visual artist and he was talking about what he was doing and why it was important to him. And we had playground equipment at the church, old concrete playground equipment that had faded. The, the paint job from 25 years before had faded. And um, I said, hey, you know, I imagine you know other artists who are your neighbors around here. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, you know, could you, could you hire them to be, um, you know, to, and you all paint the playground equipment. And he said, well, I don't have any money. And I said, well, we have a little money. We can, we can do this. So he began to hire young people. He had, my favorite thing was there were a group of young people who'd been tagging the church, right. Um, you know, with graffiti, right. And he, he um, saw it and went up to them, and they started running away. And he's like, "No, no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, no! I'm not undercover. I'm trying right. to hire you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I've got a job for you." <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. so, as they began painting, he around the same time we had had a relationship with the Regional Museum of Art, and the and the curator from there would come by every once in a while. And he came by and met Diamond, and they were talking and. He was like, you know, these young people are really talented. <laughs> Demon said, yeah. I know. <laughs> they yeah. really are. Yeah. And so they began talking, and they ended up doing an exhibition at the Regional Museum of Art, um, connected with an exhibition going on about the Holocaust. They asked the young people, what were the Holocausts in their lives? And they did this wow. history thing for them, and they, yeah, it was, wow, yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't write about that in the book. <laughs> yeah, no, I felt like that was a story I hadn't heard of. It was very, right, uh, right. super interesting. How, how does that begin to, right, because this is like you and a single relationship, you and a, you know, like yes. you and a relationship. How does that begin, uh, the word I want to say is scale. I know it's not about scaling, but it, it, how does how does your DNA that's changed basically start to get exported to the congregation? Well, one of the things is it's really holding a mirror up to the congregation because mm-hmm. it, it, it was our minds that needed to change, not our, not our DNA, right? The DNA was already there because all of us have achieved anything in this life we have gotten, anything, mm-hmm. because people believed in us and loved us, even though we have problems, and yeah. so part of it was just to remind ourselves of that. Um, but I, this is back to the thing we talked before about, but all the practices had been around scarcity. So it wasn't that our minds were oriented around that as much, even though our language might have been, but our right. own actual experiences of being alive in this world are all about you know building on what we have, cultivating right. that. So... Um, yeah, it was just like holding a mirror up to people and saying, you know, isn't this true of you? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, it's probably, if it's true of you, it's probably true of the other people you're meeting. Right. And so to invite people to share their gifts in ways. So one of the very practical ways that this happened was about a year after we'd been doing this food pantry thing. Um, yeah. My my youngest son had started preschool, and I went with him to get him signed up. And you know, one of the things was uh, 
you know, can you volunteer as a parent? Can you volunteer in the school office? And I said, yes. And said, do you know how to use a computer? And I said, yes. And they said, do you have a flexible schedule? I'm a pastor. Yes, I am. And they said, well, okay. And then nobody ever called me. Hmm. And it felt really miserable. And I realized that's what I've been doing with people at the food pantry. I ask people what they're good enough at that they could teach, but then I don't follow up with that at all, just like I hadn't been followed up with at the school. And so I went back to people in the food pantry and say, hey, you know, this thing that you said you're good enough at to teach somebody else, if you can get three people to show up for the class, you can meet here at the church and and teach it. We'll give you space to teach it. We'll even provide the materials, but we're not going to advertise for you. You have to get people at the class. And we'll put a coffee can in the room, and whoever puts money in the coffee can who comes to the class, you get to keep the money in the coffee can. (laughs) So we had classes in Mexican cooking, in basic auto repair, in painting, in Bible study, in music, in Tai Chi, in the history of the Hollywood Western and why black men were left out. And then, really? Yes. Yeah. There was a guy who lived about a block from us who that's what he wanted to teach. And he knew about movies. And yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, conversational physics. And um, so. Wow. It's like an oxymoron, but good for them. <laughs> yeah. And and so, you know, we'd have these six-week classes and people would come and we called it the School of the Spirit. But that was a practice that was reminding us. People say they can teach something, give them a chance to show that. And, you know, a lot of the classes were really well attended. And so after a couple of years, we decided the ones that were really well attended will start. So we created something we called Broadway University. <laughs> and yeah. so you had to pay up front, but the teacher got all the money. It was $7 a class. So if you went for six weeks, it was a decent, I mean, nobody was getting rich on it, but that wasn't yeah. the thing, right? The thing was, do, pe- do people see and know that you have power and agency in your life? I, I'm wondering, I mean, the church, as, as in any large organization of people, doesn't change quickly and sometimes doesn't change easily. As Broadway is becoming actually integrated into its community, actually a, a really a, a, a community space where people are teaching these conversational physics classes and gathering and being the church in this new way, are any of the existing members of the church pushing back? You know, I get this question a lot, actually, Eddie. So mm. I'm glad you asked in a way. Yeah. I, I think it's one of the questions that most surprised me because if – if um, you are in a church, one of the things I think you know is that there is nothing that happens in the church that people don't push back on. <laughs> well, I, I'm saying this because I used to be a pastor, yes. and we changed the bulletin size, <laughs> yes. and someone left our church yes. because of a bulletin. And you're like, <laughs> really, man? That's that's a bulletin. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. it may have been brewing for a while, Absolutely. but you know, but no, I know. Change changes, but to their and people aren't curmudgeonly bad, but change can sometimes be hard for people, and they don't necessarily want out of a church what you are seeing as the vision for this place. Right. So anyhow, continue well, on. Your yes. Answer. So I, I don't think the question is you know, is there pushback? I think the question is, is it pushback against something I actually believe in or is it pushback oh. about something I don't, right? Oh, I see. And, yes. and so 
I because I just don't think there's a way to do anything at church in a church, including the ways that you've always done things, right? I mean, how many right. times I'm sure you had this as a pastor, people calling you saying, Well, this thing has to change. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, Great. The music's be, too loud, the music's too soft. Or the music's yeah. the wrong style, or the you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's there's all that. Absolutely. Um, uh, yes, there was, there was, there is definitely pushback. I had one of the leaders here at the church in Indianapolis. We've been doing this stuff for a while. She pounded the table once uh, around me and said, you know, we do less than we used to. Huh. And I said, yes, isn't it great? <laughs> she, right. And, right. And, and she didn't laugh, but <laughs> she's still here. She's still one of the biggest supporters of the church, and she she does celebrate what we do, but still there's things that in her mind are like, wow, this is still sometimes a difficult thing for me to wrap my mind around. Mm. I think where we left in the narrative, it's 2001. Um, I, what, what transpires in this, really, this next decade of just fundamentally cha- changing from this scarcity model to this abundance model, to really rethinking how we do this. What what begins to happen in the life of Broadway, and I guess in your life? So in 2003, I come back to Indianapolis, and I, which is something I had not planned to do. The bishop called and sent me back to Broadway in Indianapolis, this time as a senior pastor. And I came in and um, I'm trying to think, what does it mean that now I'm here in this place that has a lot more resources than the place I was at in South Bend? You know, what is what is this difference in things mean? So, with the with the leadership, the both the lay and the clergy leadership here at the church, we talked about that, we prayed about it, and we struggled with that and and tried different things. I would say the biggest thing for me personally in this was in 2007. I went to South Africa mm. because I wanted to see people who were doing who who were building something new right. out of um, out of something that hadn't been working for them. And while I was there, I, I met a guy with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission called Charles Villavincencio, and he said we had a joke in South Africa in the 80s. And I thought, well, what was funny in South Africa in the 80s? And they said, well. Okay. Um, there are two possible solutions to our crisis here. One is miraculous and one is realistic. One solution is that God will send down angels and sort us all out. That's the realistic solution. The miraculous one is that we will sit down and talk with our enemies. And that's what they wow. did. And I thought, if they could do that, how come I can't trust that same dynamic of abundance, in this case, an abundance of forgiveness in the midst of awful, <laughs> heartbreaking, right. evil, and pain and things. So paying attention to abundance should be easy <laughs> connection to this, right. but it means making a real commitment to it. It means, you know, they set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What do we need to set up here to begin practicing this, to begin working it out? So now, every Sunday in worship, we have what we call the lesson from the contemporary church. And while it can be a little different from time to time, I would say that at least 40 out of 52 Sundays, probably more than that, it's a person not from inside the congregation, but somebody outside who comes and 
in an interview style most of the time, we have a conversation with that person about this call and gift they have. And often Mm. it's a person who would be seen in the eyes of the world as someone who's needy. But we see people as Mm. not needy, but needed. And so I just said, we've got to do this every week because I need a reminder. And, um, you know, every week we do this. And I would say to you now, it wasn't true at the beginning, but I would say to you now that probably 75% of the congregation would tell you it may be their favorite time in worship. Really? Yes. Yes. I mean, they, people get <laughs> surprised and they see and hear. And it's so much more powerful than me telling somebody's story in the sermon. But the power it gives me for them getting to tell their story there is then I can use it in the sermon. But them having told it is so much more powerful. Right. In their voice. In their, in their in, voice. In, in right. this sacred place, right? This is a part of our worship. That's right. So the other thing we did was, and this involved the sanctuary space as well as here, was we said, you know, one of the problems is people, you know, there's still this dynamic of people wanting to go back to the good old days and when they were the largest church and all this stuff. And one of the things was, because that's what they were spending a lot of time talking about, which wasn't bad, is they were missing what was right in front of them. But part of that was that there hadn't been space given to grieve the things that were had passed. Mm. And so we began doing a thing once a, once a Sunday, once a month, on, on the last Sunday of the month, we would celebrate things that had died that were no longer happening, things that were continuing, and things that were new. Oh, wow. And I had not realized how powerful the... It wasn't my suggestion to do this. It was one of the lay leaders, but I did not realize how powerful the thing of celebrating the thing that was done, finished, ended. But we had a, a, a um, like a thrift shop here at Broadway when I came back. It was here when I was here before. It had been running for 35, 40 years. It was run by 80 and 90-year-old women now who didn't want to keep running it, and there was nobody younger who wanted to take it over. Hmm. So they stopped working, and it said it's closed. So we would put in the bulletin every week, it's closed, but people still acted like it was open. And by that, I mean people kept donating stuff to it. And so yeah. we were getting these rooms piled with things. And why is this going on? We, we say every week in the bulletin that it's not you know, here anymore. So one Sunday, the first Sunday we started doing this, we invited everybody who'd ever volunteered to work in the thrift shop to come forward. And they came forward and we gave them a gift. And the congregation said to them, well done, good and faithful servants. Huh. And then we asked everybody who'd ever donated to it to stand. And then we said together to them, well done, good and faithful servants. And we knew that it was done. And so often, not only in churches, but in all sorts of organizations, we're embarrassed when something isn't going on anymore that we felt good about. And so we don't talk about it or there's shame associated with it. Well, we aren't what we used to be and we could, we can't do that anymore. But then you can't spend any time doing what you do have the capacity and the gifts for. So that grieving time became incredibly important. It took a couple of years for us to bury everything that was dead. But we we got it done, and 
towards the end of that, one of the leaders of the church said to me, you know, there's one thing we haven't done yet, and I'd like to do it this Sunday. So that Sunday, he got up in front of the congregation. He said, well, anybody who's ever said we've always done it that way before, please stand. <laughs> and people stood, That's... and we said together, well done, good and faithful servants. Oh, that is so meta to say <laughs> goodbye to the people who are saying, yeah, I can't even. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, how, how has... <laughs> that is really funny. What's Broadway look like today as as you've progressed through the years, as you've said goodbye to things, and as you've continued to affirm the assets of the community? Yeah. What is what is the picture of Broadway today? Well, there's several things. So one is there's a few more people than were here back then, but there's much more a sense of vitality about it than there yeah. was um, when, when I was here before. I Remember, I had come from this 40-member church who, when I left it, it, there were 90 people there. But when I got there, there was 40 people. And and remember the treasurer who said, we don't have much money. When I had right. gone to the first board meeting when I came back here, the treasurer said, well, um, here's the financial report. We have $2 million in the bank, but we don't have enough to spend on on anything. And it was like, you know, I can show you a place that has nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, this isn't this isn't it in that um, in that way. So um, I again, I feel like the thing that's changed most is an interior change. Is that we t spend our time talking about where's the vitality here, where's the life, mm -hmm. what does it mean that we have these gifted people both inside and outside of our walls, and how do we continue to blow on that, encourage it, you know, strengthen it. How can we join it and be a part of it? The other thing that's changed is the building is full with things going on in it. Not things that the church is doing, but things that the community is doing. So I'm sitting in the library right now, which later on this afternoon will be filled with young people, violins and cellos, and with the Metropolitan Youth Orchestra, many of them young people who live a couple blocks, uh, within a couple blocks here. There's a dance studio in the room up above me. There's a pottery studio. There's a photography studio. There are four artist studios. Um, that is cool. There's an architecture firm just down the hall from me here. Um, there's nine kitchens in this building. Um, I just got a note today from a neighbor who said, hey, I'm I'm starting up a little uh, food um, preparation thing. I talked with the health department. They said the church's um, kitchens are approved for that. Can can I come use it as a startup thing for that? Um, so it's just, uh, you know, if you walked up here any day of the week, any day of the week, the, the doors would be unlocked until about, I don't know, nine or so at night. <laughs> Um, that is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's just life, life going on here. That is a way to describe it. There's life going on. I mean, because any church, I mean, I, and again, I'm not dogging on churches. The reason we're telling this story is so that we can learn together. But I mean, churches are, it, we're recording this on a Friday afternoon and church is usually silent. The staff is on their way out and it's just quiet until somebody shows up Sunday morning. But the fact that yours is full of life says a lot about what has actually transpired from what was a philosophical shift in you. Right. Well, it was a philosophical shift, but it, it changed my whole life. For people of uh, who are listening, who are not people of faith, they're not a part yeah. of a church, first of all, good for them for making it this far in the podcast where we <laughs> talked a lot about church. They're awesome. Um, but I'm listening, how, how would you encourage them to take this kind of this 
principle of asset based community and apply it to to other parts of 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 life. Uh, I actually think that it's places outside the church that seem to understand this a lot better than places inside the church. <laughs> we in the church That's are so true. intent on quote helping the needy that we have a hard time yeah. peeping seeing people as as people who have something to offer. We particularly find, oddly enough for us, that health organizations understand this deeply. Um, uh-huh. We had, we had, have had, um, like uh, the School of Public Health at Indiana University, Purdue University came to us and said, we, um, one of the things we, we notice is that, um, and so they're noticing a need, right? African-American women age 25 to 35 have children with lower APGAR scores. But they said, one of the things we notice that you all have identified is that there's a lot of artists in your neighborhood. That's right, we said. And they said, well, we'd like to hire the artists in your neighborhood. Now, remember, if we hadn't been keeping track of what the gifts were around us, we wouldn't have known this. Right. There would have been files in a folder. Yeah. Right. We'd like to hire the artists to go do art in the home of African-American women aged 25 to 35. Because the reason the children have lower APGAR scores is because that demographic is the most stressed demographic in American society. And when your body is stressed, it produces cortisol, and cortisol is um, unhealthy. <laughs> and so wow. um, it, 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 it's when your stress levels are high, you have high levels of cortisol, and it causes children then to, be, to have low APGAR scores um, when they're born. And so we're, they wanted to do an experiment, right? So they would hire artists to go in the homes of African-American women aged 25 to 35 and at the beginning would swipe the inside of their mouth with a Q-tip and put it in a test tube. And at the end of the, their doing art together, they would swipe the mouth again. And did the cortisol levels go down, right? You're following me yeah. in this, yeah. right? Yeah, right, totally. right, right. Yeah. So the interesting thing was they, they, of course, did go down, but from the from the School of Public Health's perspective, they were going down because the people were doing art, which they may be in part right. But we had a little difference of opinion with them about this because we thought at least one of the reasons that they might have been going down was because people were seeing their neighbors, people they knew and loved, being valued for some gift that they had and seeing that they had agency, (laughs) right? Power to do something about it. And to the extent that we believe and know that we have agency and power, the stress level goes down. And so um, anyway, it's just a little disagreement we have about what's all at work with this. But that's an example of, right? And and we have a lot of this. The second summer, so we hire young people. Do you have time for me to tell this? Oh, yeah. Oh, this is great. Yes, please, sir. So we hire um, young people who live in our neighborhood. We don't do the old summer program anymore, even though it wasn't a bad thing, but it wasn't really making things better. But we hire young people in our neighborhood every summer, and we pay them to meet their neighbors. And they do three things. They name the gifts, talents, dreams, and passions they find in the lives of their neighbors. They lay hands on them and bless them. And then they connect them to other people who care about the same thing. Um, and we call it name, bless, and connect. But I'm going to connect this to your larger question about people outside the church. Because after the second summer we had done this, I got a call that fall from the state health department. And I didn't know people at the state health department. And, and they're calling and they say, um, uh, we want to come talk to you all this afternoon. 
And I said, why? And they said, well, we'll tell you when we get there. Great. <laughs> oh, that's ominous. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. The state health department saying this, this isn't going so well. So they show up and they said, we've been investigating you all for the past four months. Again, still not going well. <laughs> not, not great. Right. And they say, our job is to make the people of the state healthier. And we haven't been doing a good job. But what these young people are doing, we've been investigating it, and it actually makes communities healthier. And we just got $250,000 from a foundation, and we'd like to give it to your young people to build on their work next summer. No way. Well, we hadn't started doing this in order for that to happen, but we did do what we were doing because we believed it worked for people. But now we were starting to have people outside the church, right, who were beginning to recognize the ways in which it increased the health of people. So we said, well, we can talk about it. And we began having conversations. So the next summer, there was this huge investment in, in what the young people were doing. But anyway, this is just to say, yes, this happens all around us all the time. It's just so simple, isn't it? I mean, it's not, but it is. I love that his huge paradigm shift for his life and for this church just had to do with not seeing people as uh, people who just need charity, but who have these incredible latent abilities and just need a place to express them. And the church can be a place where that happens. I, I was deeply inspired by this, as you can tell, because I'm just recapping everything you just heard. I am so deeply grateful for him. Again, there's a link to buy this book. I would encourage you to read it. It's a quick little read. And as a postscript to this conversation, it was just announced a few weeks ago that Reverend Mather, as well as Kathy, his wife, are moving to another church in Boulder where he will be a pastor there. Apparently, they have a grandchild on the way and want to be closer to that baby, which is about the sweetest thing ever. And what I think is just great is that the work that has happened in and around the community of Broadway United Methodists will continue because it's really bigger than him. And it's even bigger than his book. It is a community realizing who they are together. One of the ways we get to be a community even digitally, is through social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of them are New Activist Is. I always appreciate getting to interact with you all throughout the weeks as you listen to the episodes. Also, if you have a moment and you haven't done so yet, if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, you giving us five stars and an encouraging word is both extremely affirming and thank you, but it really does help other people find the show. Thank you for that. A huge thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. His tour dates, music, merch, etc. can be found at prophiphop.com. He also has a few podcasts that you should be listening to. Head over to his Twitter, prophiphop, for the latest to make sure to thank him for today's music. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Reverend Michael Mather and my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.